Okay, boom. Um, wait, wait, wait. Don't skip ahead. This is a new intro. I know when I listen to my favorite podcasts, I often skip the intro because I've heard it a million times. Um, but we're really excited. Um, we've put together a new program offering. Uh, I've got a personal goal to help a million people in Australia and across the world transform out of addictive patterns because it's just completely unnecessary suffering. Um, and given everything that's happening in this crazy COVID-19 um, space and times, we've put together a new offering. It's called Growth Healing Online. Um, we're pumped because there's lots of people taking it up. But basically what it is, is an online membership base um, where we're not only creating a supportive community that interacts and helps each other, but we've gone in depth and we've pretty much put rehab online and we've got our in-depth training program that we take people through and our full-scale coaching program with connection-based living. Um, so that's amazing. Uh, we've got live coaching sessions that happen um, every fortnight. Uh, there's a whole personal stories library, loads of other training content, like hours and hours of training content in there. Um, and we've got heaps of other really, really exciting stuff coming with it. Um, so yeah, we just wanted to let you know um, and yeah, wanted to encourage you, persuade you to jump in and um, take us up on it. We've got a special launch offer on at the moment. Um, it's only $47 a month. And if you subscribe now, you'll get lifetime um, access to that $47 price tag uh, when it's usually a couple of hundred bucks because it's just got so much value in there. Um, so jump in, take us up on that offer. Um, uh, yeah, it, it won't hang around forever. Um, but all you have to do is go to www.connectionbasedliving.com.au uh, forward slash uh, products and resources. That's www.connectionbasedliving. Um, and then just go to our products and resources pages and it'll be there. It's called Growth Healing Online. Take us up on the launch offer. Uh, it's at that price because we've got heaps of other cool stuff coming, um, but it's not going to hang around forever. Uh, so we hope to see you in the membership area and help me help a million people uh, change uh, and transform out of addictive patterns. Um, we'd love to see you in there. And just remember, I've been telling this to everyone because it's true. You're only one shift away from completely changing everything. Just one, just one perspective change, just one shift. You just, it's its so close. Um, and imagine if you could sit back five years from now and go, I subscribed to a $47 online program and my whole life changed. It'd be pretty cool. Um, and that's more than possible. So we hope that we see you in the membership area and into the show. Boom. Welcome, everyone. Um, now, we've just dived straight in today. It's all happening here in Victoria in the state of lockdown that we're in. Um, so there's there's some news happening and I think I messed up the uh, podcast time with my uh, guest here today. So um, we're, just, we're just in for the conversation, which is how things actually happen um, a little better. But just before I introduce our guest, I just um, one of the things that we want to do here with this show is that uh, you know, we get a really good response from when we do people's personal stories. We get a great response when we have family members come on and share their story. Um, and we also get a very keen and interested response when we have, I suppose, professionals that come on um, and researchers and things like that from the alcohol and drug space that I would say probably don't get enough of a run in like mainstream media in a contextual conversation to put forward the evidence and explain the system and, you know, all those sorts of things. So we're excited today to have um, Sam Biondo with us from um, now. He's a, he's a Victorian man. This goes out nationally, Sam, or around the world, actually. We've got a few people listening from America, but we're talking Victoria mainly today. Um, and yeah, Sam's the CEO of VADA, the Victorian Drug and Alcohol Association. Is that what it is, Sam? Yeah, thereabouts. It's the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association. <laughs> okay, I was close. Got him, got him around the wrong way. And I'll let Sam talk about it a little bit. But, um, you know, and Sam's just not here in that professional capacity either. But it's obviously part of what he does. But, um, you know, VADA is kind of like, um, I guess, how would you say it's almost like the voice of all the services here in Victoria that, that deliver um, that deliver services to people that 
are struggling with alcohol and drugs or represents them um, and, and is a membership base. So pretty interesting stuff. And Sam's been involved in the alcohol and drug space for, you know, 20 plus years now, I think. Um, or am I making that up? Um, and yeah, so we're excited so, to have- so, so, far you're, so far you're making it up. You'll hit the point at some point. <laughs> <laughs> it's, clo it's, clo it's close if you, if you count other, other places. Maybe what I, what I should say is that uh, the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association is- uh, sensibly the, the peak for the alcohol and drug treatment sector in Victoria. That's the publicly funded AOD sector in Victoria. There's yeah. approximately 1,800, 2,000 people working across the sector. Wow. Um, from addiction medicine specialists, psychiatrists, doctors, nurses, um, counsellors, social workers, uh, I think I've mentioned psychologists, you know, peer workers. So there's a, a multifaceted, very complex, very competent workforce um, dealing with extremely complex issues generally. Yeah. yeah. And I know my background goes back, uh, you know, I wanted to, when I was young, I wanted to be a, a teacher because uh, I thought, um, you know, it's, it's one of the ways people uh, can get great opportunity in life. I wanted to give back. Um, by the time I did my teaching rounds, I thought, mm, maybe these kids need social workers. So I did social work. Uh, after a while doing that, I ended up um, working in a community legal service, a place called Fitzroy Legal Service. Still there, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's, it's the first, one of the first legal services in the country. Uh, fantastic reputation. Um, and then after that, I felt, uh, well, maybe what people need is criminologists and then I did a criminology course. So from there, because we were seeing so many people with alcohol and, and drug issues, uh, I started getting involved with barter on the board um, and it was sort of progression from one workplace to another and the impact of alcohol and drugs has been a, a consideration across all these workplaces. Yeah, so that's interesting. So. So there you go. And I didn't, I didn't know that about your, you know, I'm always interested to hear people's professional progression into the places that they, that they get to and, and why it is that they do what they do. So, so it really sort of came from, yeah, as you said, first starting as a teacher, but just sort of seeing the problems as you were getting involved in the different forms of work. Well, I could say that, uh, that you know, don't take it seriously. Alcohol and drugs has made me the person I am, but Many of, us, many of us can say that from different perspectives. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I love it. I love it. So um, I made an absolute, you know, uh, I talk to people about things like barter every day and I, I butchered it straight off the top. So that's not very good. But um, so it's mainly the treatment sector, right? That you're focusing on. Is that correct? All the, the, the services that you guys represent? Uh, treatment sector. We've got fantastic linkages with the harm reduction sector in Victoria. Uh, yep. They do an amazing, amazing amount of work right at the interface um, with individuals who are who are living the experience on a daily basis. Yeah, you know, I find that uh, really uh, quite compelling um, work. If you actually see the work that they do, yeah, yeah, interesting. So that's what I think, and where I sort of wanted to go with you today. Um, so, how long have you been at Vada for, as the CEO, or just involved with Vada or all up? I've been there thirteen years um, yeah. Yeah. as CEO, and prior to that, I was at the legal service for about eighteen years. Yeah, so massive chunk within this space. So. Um, that's what I wanted to cover with you today, because I guess the main thing that we get from people listening to this show um, is that they, they might get a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of hope to, to get some help and, and change things up, or it might be some family listening to things. And the thing that they always say to me is that they, they call me up sometimes, they say, Jack, you know, like we just can't get in anywhere quick enough, you know? Um, so, can you sort of explain the different facets of the alcohol and drug system just off the top of your head and, and how it works to give people some context, like maybe as to why some things that are the way they are? Sure, I'll, I'll get into the context of how our system works. Um, I just think it's important to know 
that in Australia, Australia-wide, there's somewhere between 200 and 500,000 people that can't get access to treatment. Mm. So what I'm talking about is, and what we're concerned about, is a national problem in a, uh, a system that is working largely at capacity, and uh, that's what creates a range of problems for people to access. And many people have problems in accessing our system because of the waiting list, because of um, the location, because services aren't available where they're required, uh, because people have children and, and there's not enough spots where, for parents and children to come into services. Uh, so there's a whole range of impediments. Essentially, uh, Victoria's system has got some features in it which um, could be improved and some features which I think uh, are excellent. Um, there is a problem of people accessing the system often because they don't understand or know where to go. They yeah. don't know that you're going to have an intake and then to be assessed uh, for what's suitable for your situation. Yeah. And then uh, depending on what's available, uh, where you get referred, uh, you may have to wait. Um, and often people don't wait if they've got an alcohol issue. Yeah. People are quite impulsive. I've got to do it now. I'm ready for it now. Uh, and our system seems really uninviting because people have to wait. And then that leads um, to frustration and to some extent reputational damage. Yeah. So a system that's just um, under-resourced to do what it has to do. Look, let's face it, if you look at the alcohol industry and the, and the multiple, multiple billions of dollars that are made out of profits and taxes from that industry, and a, an absolute fraction of that money comes into the treatment service to actually deal with the harms that are created nationally. Yeah. So, you know, we're always going to be behind the eight ball. Um, we're getting smarter how we do things. We try and do a lot. You know, COVID has taught us a lot. Uh, doing things online, uh, doing things over the phone, uh, self-help, uh, app, uh, apps, web support, um, all these things uh, are being used. Nothing beats, I think, face-to-face -face mm. support. Mm. Uh, and of course, in the, in the process, we've also seen a private industry of varying quality uh, develop around yeah. us. Yeah. Some of it uh, provides excellent support and some of it really is quite questionable um, and some of the standards really uh, and quality outputs uh, have to be questioned. Interesting. So can we get into that a little bit? Because it's something, um, yeah, that I, that I love talking to people about, but it's controversial because that's where I actually, and I've spoken to you about this a few times, I think it's, it's kind of where I started my career and, and there's parts of it that are really, think are great and agree with and then there's parts that just make me twist and turn when I try and go to sleep at night um, and I guess there's that old sort of if you want to call it almost I have it as well like a cognitive bias that people have Un understandably it's sort of what you'd initially think that just automatically private is better you know um, and I'm going through this with a couple of families that I'm working with at the moment just trying to get access to some detox services and things like that. But um, yeah, they, they've sort of found that some of the, some of the public services are actually better than the private services in terms of the support that they offer and, and things like that. Um, but is that a problem that's worse in Victoria or is that all over Australia? I think it's, it's all over Australia. Um, I, I, the issue uh, from my perspective is that we're trying to do too much with too little in the private sector, in the public sector. Yeah. The private sector has come in to fill a gap and will provide a particular perspective of what's really, what they say is really good. Mm. Uh, you have to pay through the eye tooth generally. Uh, some places, you know, $30,000 a month or $10,000 a month. It really puts a lot of pressure on, on families uh, of their loved ones. Uh, some places are uh, asking people uh, 
enter into mortgages and supporting them to do that or accessing their superannuation, which I find really reprehensible and, and problematic. Mm. Um, some play, you know, the quality, I've read enough perennial inquests to know that uh, things go wrong whichever end of the spectrum you're on, whether you're public or private, and I don't lay judgment um, and say that we're the best in the world. We, you know, we have to be balanced about these things uh, and we're dealing with such complex issues and, and, and individuals, you can't guarantee anything. Mm. However, there are a range of quality standards and oversight and accountability within the private sector, within the public sector, sorry, that um, actually um, balance things up. And likewise, in some public uh, spaces, uh, in some private areas, um, they're, they're working under hospital rules and, and regulations. Um, and that's why it's so expensive. Um, yep. uh, you know, if you look at aged care facilities, uh, we have a private model in Australia, largely. Uh, you have to wonder how uh, a lot of public money that gets put into these private services, private facilities um, could end up going out as dividends to private companies. Mm. Uh, I don't find that comfortable to, to learn about or hear about. I know people get charged extra, uh, but I do know in the AAD system, money gets cloudy. Victoria's public AAD system, money gets put back into the system itself. Mm. So it's interesting though, Sam, because this is where, so I, I sort of like, there's lots of the things that you described and, and more that go on in the private sector that are terrible, um, that I don't agree with, but then, but then there's lots of, I guess, like structural things that I think, you know, we can change about the, the public sector to make it, um, more effective for the people that it's serving you know so so one thing that i always hear from people about you know the the public sector is and again it's not this is not bagging people that work in the public system because they're just amazing and they get paid you know peanuts really to do it it's very hard work um but you know if we could structure things in a way where just take for example one small slice where you know people went into detox and there was at least, I don't know, like quotas introduced where people, where, where workers were really, really incentivized to try and talk people around and keep them in the, the facility and, and things like that. Because, you know, if you can just hold someone just an extra day, sometimes that's enough for the rabbits to stop jumping in the top paddock. You know, th things like that, whereas they're underpaid, they're stressed, they're not incentivized. So you know, I, I kind of get it. The, the, the extra effort may sometimes not be there to, to help keep people in. Do you think things like that would work to, to change the public system a little bit or is that wishful thinking? Generally, I, I think that uh, some of those mechanisms are available and being undertaken. Uh, the problem in that particular example of yeah. uh, detox and residential let's say you're going into a residential facility, yeah. it's a discoordination of capacity. Yeah. You, may, you, you need to actually coordinate your, your detox with the availability of bed once you finish the detox. You mm. need, need to move from one to the other. And often there's a gap, which mm. is, and particularly problematic at the moment where we've actually dropped the numbers in residential facilities because of social distancing and COVID. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, th these issues, uh, because there's a weight of numbers coming in, you actually literally put some effort into one person, then may have to go to the next one that's waiting in line. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So for someone like you that's in an organisation that's advocating for these types of structural changes, because that's what we're sort of talking about, um, how do you actually go about making change you know like how does how does things get passed and and moved and changed so that it can be a more effective system because you know whoever you speak to that's what they say and and that's what you're saying to me now i think is that it's not 
the people, the people that are working there are dedicated, uh, all that stuff. It's the system's failings to, to support them in their work that, that's struggling. So how do you actually change that? Uh, look, it's, it's a bit hard on radio, but my, my forehead's a bit flatter than it used to be, and that's from hitting the head in the wall, against the wall. <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's really literally what you need to do. And I, I joke around and saying I'm, a, I'm a professional whinging, carping critic. I spend <laughs> so much of my time just raising issues and saying, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to invest in this. Um, you know, we have a system that has blocked, if you look at it as like a, an organic pipeline system, spaghetti pipeline thing, yep. there's blockages in a whole range of places. You, you intuitively know if you fix that blockage there, things flow better through the system. Yeah. But you need uh, an opportunity to fix multiple blockages so things flow through the whole system. Mm, mm. And that's what was unfortunate at the, at the last uh, um, recommissioning or uh, rejig of our system back in 2014. It created other thresholds people, people needed to get past. You no longer just walk up to the door or ring up an agency and knock. Yeah. It's going to be centralised to create an efficient flow and triage to the services you needed, mm. which actually upset people because they couldn't get to where they needed to get. Yeah. And it started to block up the system. Mm. And ever since then, uh, my head's getting flatter. Uh, we're very grateful for you know, the state government over recent years has put in an additional, uh, you know, $230 million or something mm -hmm. like this, 260. Uh, and that's been gratefully received to expand the residential bed capacity, to expand some of the uh, counselling capacity, uh, day, day hab or day rehabilitation facility as well. But still, in comparison to the creation of the problem by multiple forces, be it the illicit market or the pharmaceutical market or alcohol industry, illegal substances, uh, we're still um, running faster and faster to try and meet up. Yeah. So, so I like to ask people these hypothetical questions, right? If I, if I gave you like the keys to the treasury um, and you could have all the alcohol and drug funding that you needed, what would you do with it? You know, from everything that you've seen, what, what's, the, what's the number one thing that you'd go for first to try and impact the change? Oh, not, not to express too much of my dictatorial tendencies, however, <laughs> <laughs> let me just go with the flow here. I think it's really important to actually develop a model of care that is consistent across the state. Yeah. Right? A standardised model of care with a taxonomy, if that's the right word, about what each job description sort of is. But these are transferable from one location to another. Uh, we have... Um, like major, um, you, you multiply this model across the regions, across the state, and you have a range of satellites running off that that are able to feed people into this larger facility that's got the, the full kit and caboodle of, of services available, including access to withdrawal beds and detoxes. You would make it so that uh, the intake system and the assessment is done uh, quicker. Uh, and is more accessible. I think that uh, it'd be very important to then um, have that easy entry, a suite of services to deal with the complexity that you, are, that you come with, um, mm. which can be um, often uh, you have dual diagnosis, multiple complex issues, be it mental health or other health issues. So you need the, those pathways and relationships developed or you offer those services in-house. And then on exit, you need to be stable and stable accommodation, supported for a period of time uh, and enhanced with uh, something to do, something that gives you hope in life, uh, be it work, training, whatever. Uh, and I, I think um, fundamental to this because so many people are coming to us from the correctional system in Victoria somewhere yeah. around eight or 12,000 people a year. 
it, it, we have to do something that where what's forcing so many people to go into prison and then come to us after that experience. Yeah, yeah. If you're able to better reintegrate those individuals when they come out of prison, then you don't have that recidivist you know, 50% flow back into a very expensive prison system. Mm. Those funds would be better uh, spent at the community level, yep. provide the services you need to stop the entry into prison, to stop the flow of people with drug issues coming into us. And I think everyone would be better off. Yeah. So every time you talk, I, I just get all these questions firing into my head. So I've got to, I've got to try and note them down and remember. So, so what about like something that I'm very interested in that I know has been brought up before. And I, I know that you're the, you're the head honcho of a state operation, but do you think something like a national um, bed registry or central intake point would work or be helpful to people or is ideas like that just sort of they sound good in theory but it's kind of a bit of a pipe dream pardon the pun i think there needs to be an investment an investment into um bed list management yeah support for people that need for those that need to go into res rehab and that's me but uh, for those that are waiting there needs to be much more intensive support and yeah. management of uh, that system. And we should try and actually reduce the waiting list. At the moment, uh, waiting list is getting longer because of COVID. Mm. Uh, we think that's going to create a, a bubble of demand uh, mm. on top of suppressed demand that's coming out of, you know, one alcohol advertisement every 35 seconds. Yeah. create problems in the long run. In fact, uh, we've seen catastrophes in the past, bushfires or floods, lead to an escalation of alcohol and drug issues in the near future. So our system is, that, is going to be bracing itself for a, a big influx, a full-on collision, frankly, with, with demand. Um, so yes, we need to do that, uh, that management of, of waiting lists better, particularly into those scarce resources. Mm. So, um, the other thing, the other thing I was going to ask you is, is it's, it's interesting the model of care that you described um, with this huge demand that you think is going to be coming with all the stuff that's happened with COVID-19 um, and all the, all the learnings that we've taken out of COVID-19. Um, how has it been trying to integrate the alcohol and drug system to this sort of telehealth slash online platforms like and and is it effective or is it is it um just you know something that doesn't work properly uh telehealth is something that people have picked up very quickly um it's been widely used across our sector uh it is really been highly accepted by ex-prisoners. Um, ex-prisoners are, are really are, are really switched onto it. And I think because it's an efficient means of dealing with, with someone else. Mm. You don't have to spend half a day going from A to B to do things. Mm. It's suitable for some, it's not suitable for others. It's complex using it where there might be family violence involved. It's It's... I don't think it suits uh, young people as much. Yeah. Too, too flighty. They're too uh, short-term focused. Uh, don't keep appointments, uh, and so you need to have that constant face-to-face. -face. There's also in in this particular business uh, a lot of cues that get picked up in that face-to-face -face yeah interaction, and you can miss that if it's online. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's a big thing that I've noticed with. Um, yeah, the whole telehealth Zoom thing is that people are saying that they love, some people are saying that they love it and others are saying, you know, this is, doesn't work for me. I, I hate it sort of thing. Um, 
how do you think it can be used? Like, because obviously we're moving into the 21st century and, and Hey, it's okay. I can see someone might be signaling you there in the background or something. If you need it, if you need to take a call or something, just let me know. But, um, no, my, um, my computer was beeping at me. Can you hear that? <laughs> no, no, I can't hear that. <laughs> um, but yeah, as we move more and more onto this like digital space, uh, it's the frustration that I've always had, obviously being sort of not as young as I was, but, you know, a, a younger kind of person in this space when I got help and things like that, you know, how can we best use technology moving forward? Like what learnings have we taken out of COVID-19 to actually implement into the treatment center, into the treatment system? I know it's not the panacea of everything, but surely it's given us a lot of benefits. Yeah, I, I think uh, people should, should embrace it where it's useful for them. Uh, I think that uh, and our agencies are, we would, certainly like greater access to uh, you know, the technology into the future but we don't I, I don't think anyone in our sector would necessarily support it being a substitute for face-to-face -face. yeah it's, that is a that is problematic yeah uh, I think that in the if you look at the pharmacotherapy area uh, there's been improvements in that space with take home yeah you know, the provision of naloxone the introduction of long-lasting buprenorphine injections that can go up to a month between oh really visits yeah so uh, that's a game changer for many people that can that, save a lot that can save a lot of people's lives if you think about the death rate after prison release uh, and preparing people better potentially there's great benefits in this thing so the Geez, I feel a bit naive here. That the long-term depot buprenorphine is that is that a new thing? Uh, it's been floating around for a couple of years in terms of it's coming, it's coming, and then last year it was introduced. Uh, there's been a range of trials, uh, and then there's um, a faster pickup during this COVID period. Yep. And that's that could be a game changer for some people in terms of stabilising them, uh, saving them a lot of time going for their daily dose if it was methadone. Um, there's, it's it's a good innovation. Interesting, interesting. So, how did they actually? So, how did they manage that? Because for people listening, um, and that's what I was kind of going to get to with Sam is that, you know, in the alcohol and drug system there's sort of a few different streams in terms of prevention then you have you know harm minimization which is a full scale right through to abstinence and treatment of course but you know there's all the interventions like um yeah needle syringe programs and you know all these sorts of things um and then and then yeah i guess you move into counseling and treatment and things like that right through to post-care support which is probably not heaps of that but um Unfortunately, because right? um, I think there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of great evidence around post treatment support. But go yeah. on, sorry. <laughs> so, so um, just so that people understand that, but but that was one of the big fears with COVID nineteen was how how do you actually manage that sort of middle part, the heart minimization space when you talk about people on drug replacement medications and and just reducing the impact. So, how did they actually go about navigating all of that? With the, with the dispensing of medication and, and things like that? Well, right early in the piece, it was identified that something had to be done, other these people, otherwise these people would be in the lurch, um, in desperate straits in terms of accessing uh, a life-sustaining uh, chemical. Uh, hmm. um, it was very important to put in place uh, policy changes within a matter of a week or two, uh, the background documentation and policies were developed um, and rolled out. Uh, pharmacists uh, informed doctors uh, and our sector as well. Uh, essentially, people were able to go in and pick up multiple days yeah. uh, and or even have a, an identified, uh, approved um, friend or colleague um, go and pick up for them. Yeah, if they needed to keep safe, 
uh, it, within that uh, also started to rise the use of some of this dep uh, depot buprenorphine, the long lasting injections in particular environments such as uh, I think uh, St. Vincent's and, uh, is involved in some of those trials. Uh, and also there was a whole range of staffers, staff and, and workers uh, going out into the field as usual. Yeah. Trying to, trying to keep everybody on the straight and narrow. Yeah. Which was a big effort and they were on the front line really. Yeah. It's interesting. So, so what are the, cause you mentioned before, that's, that's what I'm interested in. And I'm interested to hear from, from professionals that we have on here, you know, obviously there's going to be heaps of negative stuff that comes out of all this COVID-19 space, but yeah. Like what, what are some of the positive things that we take forward? Like how did they improve it? Was it just the, the depot medications or working out how to have people have takeaway medications for longer periods of time or yeah. Yeah, when you're looking at when you're desperate and you're looking at a monster in the face, namely COVID, you can come up with solutions that otherwise would take decades of of bashing your head against the wall. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know what we're hopeful is that some of these initiatives can be maintained. Yeah, but, but you know we're not turning a blind eye to the fact that you know, methadone. There are quite a number, and it's quite a significant number of methadone deaths that do occur. We, you do need to look at how things go um, and evaluate the initiatives and how they've gone. Yeah. Um, and you can't, you can't work against the evidence. You have to go with it. And if it's working, fantastic. Uh, and if the number of deaths are going up, uh, you need to address that. Yeah. Okay, cool. So can, can I ask, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this, what are, what are some of the policy, you know, given everything that's happened, what are some of the policy measures that VADA and yourself, I suppose, are, are pushing forward to, to try and get some change in the alcohol and drug sector? What's on the, uh, what's on the bucket list at the moment? Oh, yeah. You, you'd be the sort of person who asks that. You know, oh, <laughs> pretty basic stuff for the time being. It'd be great if we could get support to, and we have been given some financial support across Victoria to undertake uh, deep cleaning and um, make uh, minor infrastructure changes such as uh, hand, hands-free taps and all that stuff. Mightn't sound like much, but it's, it's big. We it don't get big, much yeah. money and this can make a positive difference. I think it's really important to um, lock in place these pharmacotherapy changes that have occurred. Yep. Uh, I think it's really important that we actually do an assessment of how SafeScript, safe which is a real-time prescription monitoring system is going. Yep. Uh, which, which was introduced right at the start of COVID yeah. on a statewide basis around April this year. Now that, that would have exposed tens of thousands of people who have been using medications to manage themselves and often inappropriate levels. Uh, I think the research with the consumer is important because we need to know how did the doctor handle it? What did they advise you? Mm. Where have you ended up? Have you just substituted one thing for another? Are you going to the street to get your supplier? Yeah. Are you being effectively managed for your pain? Given that in Victoria, well, in Australia, in Victoria, you can wait up to three years to see a pain management specialist. There's mm -hmm. a dire shortage of them with an aging population with stronger drugs coming onto the market. Uh, people are really uh, starting to, to get impacted by these. And that's why the, the number of deaths has gone up in, in Australia as it has in the United States. So this evaluation of safe script from a consumer perspective would be really valuable because then it might show that yeah, we need more pain management. I needed to be able to access a, a, a treatment system. Um, I needed uh, practitioners that were more well-versed well in benzodiazepine uh, addiction management, which is probably the largest problematic drug out of the whole lot. Yeah. So there's some of the things we've been thinking about. 
Mm, interesting. Uh, I think uh, also that uh, you were talking about the aftercare. We have what's called care recovery coordinators uh, as an activity area that are funded in agencies. It's underfunded. It's got great capacity to deal with, uh, on the one hand, holding and preparing people for entry into the system, and the other hand, following up and supporting people on exit from the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that is equally as important as getting someone in. Mm. Yeah, because what's happening now with those hubs that were meant to happen in the hospitals? Wasn't the, they meant to be those crisis, is that what they're called? Crisis hubs? The uh, alcohol and drug or mental health and AOD hubs. Yeah. Uh, there was going to be six of them, I think, um, established at emergency departments. Uh, about a year and a half, two years' work went into them. The guidelines are there, the models have been contemplated. COVID comes along and knocks the stuffing out of the ED sector department. Yeah. So that'll come on track at some point in the future. But it's most critically important that they actually deal with the dual issues of AOD and mental health, not just mental health, mm. not just AOD. Is that a big thing in the sector at the moment? The, the I struggle to say this word, the... Cholera, I can't say it. The the duality of AOD and mental health, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, Co-occurring and the, or dual diagnosis. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Well, uh, in some environments, say prisons, I think about 70% of hunters in those environments have got both an AOD and a mental health issue. Yeah. Uh, the prison system has become a holding pen for the failures our community-based systems mm -hmm. and the inaccessibility or non-services that exist in those in the in the community we it's definitely an issue and we don't want to see people end up in hospital that have their mental health or their AOD issue dealt with it's yeah. the wrong place it's too late it's too mm. severe mm. to ending up there it would be much better to invest in the prevention and support end of the spectrum yeah yeah interesting interesting so um lastly um it sounds like you know you have a big passion or you know it's just something that you see a lot in terms of how the criminal justice system interacts with aod and you know mental health and whatever but i hear a lot of people saying in terms of aod treatment that you know if we could just address the social determinants of health. So if we could, you know, help people to get some work, um, yeah, get them access to some community services, help them connect socially and all those sorts of things that we would get much better outcomes. And perhaps maybe there wouldn't even be a great and as of a great need for treatment as some of those things. Housing is probably the biggest one. Is that something that you kind of subscribe to or something like that anyway? I'm a full-on life member subscriber to what you've described. Uh, I was in Norway. I was lucky enough to get to Norway last year and talk to some uh, academics and, and epidemiologists yep. who, who are in the correctional teaching at the Correctional Institute where, by the way, they train their correctional officers up for three years, not three months. Yeah, well. Uh, their recidivism rate in Norway is down to 26%. Yeah. Uh, ours is around, floats from around 43 to 50-something percent. Yeah. If you look at it on a, on a statewide basis, that's a massive, massive multi-billion dollar problem. If you look at it on a national basis, it's a, it's, it's a cat catastrophic waste of money. Mm. Um, Queensland recently undertook a, an inquiry, um, Productivity Commission inquiry into justice issues in the correction system. They are estimating that uh, I think by 2025 they're going to spend, or 2023, about $5.2 billion just on infrastructure build alone based on their numbers. Our system runs much, much faster than that. Our mm. system is much bigger. How many billions of dollars do we want to see wasted at the at the wrong end of it, rather than at the, uh, rather than addressing people's problems, um, and it's it's not rocket science what the what the Norwegians, the Dutch, even Singapore's reduced their rate down to the low twenties. You know, 
Singapore does it in a in a pretty progressive way as well. So, yeah, but in, in Singapore, if you talk about drugs, you can get like the death penalty. <laughs> oh, I know it's not too progressive to say you get a whipping, but um, what they what they've got they've got a very supportive sort of quasi sounds a little bit like a, a spiritual approach to it. Yeah, the local areas. Uh, need to support and understand these people, not to stigmatise them, bring them in, support them to get a job, keep an eye on them, you know, support them in their way through to, to get grounded and, and uh, establish themselves once they come out of prison. What do we do? We turf someone out. We don't have any security of accommodation often for many of them. There is uh, difficulty in, in if people have a drug issue, um, getting uh, re-established and connected up. Uh, there is a whole range of issues with uh, employment because we chose to, we choose to stigmatize people mm. with, with um, you know, criminal convictions, charges, et cetera. So we need to turn that around a little bit and I think the benefits will be much better. Yeah, so, so what, do they, what do they do in Norway? Like what's the actual, you know, because I've read those documents, the Portugal stuff I've read before, I, I haven't, done too much on on Norway I assume it's something semi-similar but yeah in Portugal people get it wrong they think um you know they confuse decriminalization with legalization where you know but the Portugal stuff is really good the report where they basically that just quickly for everyone listening they say someone gets pulled up by the police or something and they have drugs on them instead of just throwing them straight into the court system they go before sort of like a panel is that right of like a social worker a doctor and um you know also a legal person as well and they actually assess their whole sort of case and everything like that and then try and work out an individual treatment plan for them and get them back into work and put them in safe areas of the community and things like that and it's worked really well for them but is that yeah. what they do in norway as well or well if in the in the with the prison environment it's not an, uh, an oppressive environment per se. They they feel that uh, it is a failure to have someone coming back mm -hmm. and or to deny someone basic human rights. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the whole endeavour from entry to prison is thinking about how can we uh, not have this person back. So from day one, they start planning for their exit. Mm -hmm. And on exit, the this sort of was quite strong around the 2008 uh, mark uh, and some features of this has continued on. Uh, a reintegration guarantee would provide you um, accommodation, uh, alcohol and drug, mental health support uh, and uh, issues around training, employment prospects, that sort mm -hmm, of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, by doing those things there, you make it um, Highest high probability that you get, you know get come back into prison because you're sort of stable on exit and you have the means to take care of yourself. And do they have um, you know different rules around you know criminal records per se as well and and employment you know around criminal records for people when they leave um, the, their criminal justice system or is it? Uh, I must admit I didn't look into that. Yeah. Uh, no, because you could look at some of the industry, you know, some of the leaders of industry now and have your doubts about what their records are too. But yeah, yeah, like, yeah. let's not go there, eh? <laughs> well, it's just the thing that I've always found the biggest, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, but it really, you know, gets people down, particularly mates and people that I've been around in the, um, yeah, in recovery circles, a lot of people will avoid particular types of work or not pursue passions. You know, they've done all this hard work to sort of get themselves back and clean themselves up in whatever regard that means for them. But then they start to look for work or whatever. And they, a lot of the times, yeah, just due to some stuff in the past, it's not like crazy stuff. You know, most people would have done it in their life. Um, they, they can't get a job, you know, and then, yeah, they stay struggling financially and that creates stress and problems. That's perpetual stigma yeah. and discrimination. 
you know, our, our spent conviction schemes uh, really need a total overhaul. Uh, the sort of messaging that we give industry about people who have done time, the vilification that occurs are all factors that uh, exclude people. And exclusion doesn't give people anywhere else to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. So, uh, look, very good interview. I love doing that stuff. Thanks for coming on and, and talking about it and lifting the, um, I know you're not a bureaucrat, but, you know, that sort of, that sort of space, the bureaucratic bail um, a little bit. One day I'm going to get a bureaucrat on here and little do they know, did you ever watch House of Cards? I call, I call them, I, I call them all Dugs. They're all Doug. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't say it to their face, Sam. They don't love it. They don't love it. Oh um, yeah. The Dugs do an important uh, dark arts <laughs> job. <laughs> um, no, thanks for coming on and sharing it. And just for people listening, you know, um, there is in, in saying all of that, you know, sometimes I'm conscious when we talk about lots of issues and things that happen in the alcohol and drug sector, uh, there actually is lots of really good services and lots of really good help. And I guess there is a system there to help you um, may not be perfect all the time. So, you know, where do people go? What's their first point of call, Sam, um, to, to reach out and get the, some help? The easiest thing to do is to call direct line. Yeah. Uh, and there's a, in Victoria at least, and then they'll triage you around. They're, they're part of the uh, Turning Point um, organisation. Uh, their phone number I'm just uh, looking for you is 1800 236. So that's 1800 236. There you go. I didn't fry, fry all the brain cells. And yeah, you can call direct line. They have 24 seven counselors and they, they're not a, um, well, they'll talk to you, but they're not like a treatment service per se, but they'll refer you to some services that can help. Um, so give them a call, but thanks again, Sam. Really appreciate it, mate. No worries. Pleasure. No regards.